People are lost. That's their story. To them, God's story is a whole universe away. His story of rescue, of hope and of life. So how can we possibly help their story to connect with God's story? Well, as we've heard, the answer is our story because our story does connect with their story. And our story connects with God's story. And so with our story in the middle, we can help their story make sense of God's story and their story connect with God's story and God's story connect with their story. And if you haven't got a clue what I'm on about, then would you listen to the first sermon uh, in this series, uh, uh, the beginning of January, on the podcast or the CD or wherever. It kind of sets the scene for what we're trying to share together through these Sundays. Having thought about knowing God's story last time, we think today about our need to hear, to listen to their story. In Colossians, Paul talks, doesn't he, about an open door that he has for the Gospel. There are doors of opportunity that come into our lives that help us make connections with the message of the Gospel, to connect our story with theirs. Now, if we are to pray like Paul, that we might discover those open doors, if we were to pray as Paul did, that we would work in partnership with God to help those doors open, then I want to suggest that there's one thing more than anything else, one singular thing that overwhelmingly we must do to see an open door or to help God in the process of opening doors, and that's to listen. Because firstly, listening creates the opportunity for connection in people's lives. For most of us, most of the time, our interactions with people that we have from day to day are with hearts, the doors of our hearts that are generally closed. That's how we go about our daily life most of the time. The doors of our hearts are generally closed. One of the blessings I have of being a minister is that I have the opportunity on most days to walk with my kids to school. Downside is I might still be working at half past ten at night, but at least in the morning it goes well. And as I'm walking to school, every single day I pass the same man, and we do the blokes thing, we acknowledge one to another that we're both okay. You okay? Yep. Yep. You okay? Yep. And off we go. And we do that day in, day out. You okay? Yep. 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 And off we go on our way. Now, there are some days when I've been anything but okay. But still, okay. And I'm sure, unless he's Superman or living on a parallel universe, there have been days when he hasn't been okay either, but he's gone, okay, off we've gone. We do that all the time with people, don't we? Our momentary interactions that we're okay, we all do it, it rolls off the tongue. We do it because we're not convinced that the other person really is asking how we are or indeed, in, at any level, interested in how we are. More likely, they're just being polite. And to a lesser or greater extent, most of our interactions through a working day or any other day go like that. All hell might be breaking loose in your life, and you might have told a few people, but that'll be a relatively small number of people, and to everyone else, you'll still be fine. You okay? Yeah, you okay. You okay? And so we do it. That's what our interactions are like. And if the relationships that you have with people, they are always in I'm okay mode, the standard default position for good English gentlemen and gentlewomen, 
there will never or hardly ever be an opportunity for us to make a connection with God's story. You see, people who are okay don't need the gospel. Jesus said, I've come not for uh, the righteous, but for the sick. I've come for people who know that they are not okay. And it's when we begin to recognise that life is not sorted, that the garden isn't rosy, that all isn't well in our world, that we can begin to make that connection with God's story. You see, people who are deliriously happy all of the time and who behave as if their deepest needs are always being fulfilled don't need God. They don't actually exist, I don't think. What exists in the world over is many people pretending that things are good all of the time or most of the time and acting like their deepest needs are being met all or if not most of the time and they're saying all is well in my world and for as long as they are saying that all is well in their world these people don't need God either. In fact they do but they can't let themselves need God because it would break or give away their pretense that all is well. It's when people begin to be honest about their need that a great door, a wide door of opportunity opens up for the gospel. Without that honesty, without that openness, there is little connection that God's story can make. So how do you help people become honest about their needs? You learn to listen to them. You will be amazed what people will share with you or with somebody they have discovered who really cares about them, who will not judge them, who is really interested in listening to them and understanding them. Listening creates the opportunity for connection. And that's what Jesus modelled all of the time. If anyone could have gone around telling people that they were miserable sinners and preaching at them using the negative connotations of that word preach, if anyone could have done that, it was Jesus. But he didn't. He modelled listening, and as a prerequisite to listening, he asked questions. Think about the rich young ruler. A filthy rich man with all that being rich can bring to a person's life. The status, the success or pretense of, the fulfillment, satisfaction or the pretense of, the power and so on and so forth. And he comes to Jesus with this question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a fantastic question. That's a good question, isn't it? On a scale of 1 to 10, he's hit the nail right on the head. He has given Jesus a wide moment to sock it to him, to give him both barrels of what eternal life is really all about. But Jesus doesn't. Instead, Jesus asks that man, in the face of what seems to be such a great opportunity, another question. Why do you call me good? A question that began to open the man up. A question that invites the man to explore his need, that enables the man to begin, if he wants to, to be truly hurt. A question that facilitates this man in dropping his guard, in revealing a little bit more of himself. And Jesus listens as the man opens up his heart. 
explaining that he had kept all the commandments since he was a boy. Hear the pain, hear the frustration and striving in these words. Yet yeah, all these I have kept since I was a boy. I've tried it. I've given all this religious stuff my very best shot, but still I do not feel the assurance that I know I can have that I have eternal life. You see, he's been trying to earn his place in heaven. That's his real need. His real need is not that he's wealthy. His need is that he thinks he can earn his way into heaven. That salvation is like earning wealth. So as Jesus listens, the man's real need opens up and Jesus makes the connection that his wealth, all that he has earned, that has made him think that salvation is something that you can earn or that you can get by a lot of effort, something that you eventually deserve by lots of striving, that's what his wealth has done for him and that's why his wealth has become such a problem. And Jesus said, go sell your stuff and you will discover what you still have not yet found. Jesus listened, asked a question, sorry, listened, and then made the connection. Consider blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was a blind beggar. He's shouting out for Jesus. He's on the side of the road, same place, every day, begging. That's all blind people can do. He cannot get a job. There's no braille, no, no dogs for the blind and so on. There he is, sitting blind beggar, nothing more he can do. And he hears this commotion coming down the road and he understands it's something about Jesus and maybe he said something about Jesus healing people. So he starts screaming out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's shouting for Jesus to come and give him some attention. Now, what does Jesus know that this man needs more than anything? You see, Jesus knows that this man's need, ultimately, his need is not his physical blindness, his need is his spiritual blindness. That's true, isn't it? That's that man's greatest need. How bursting Jesus must have been to tell this man about his spiritual blindness. And how he would be so much better if he got his spiritual blindness sorted out. And anyway, young man, this life is not very long and when you get to heaven, you'll be able to see anyway, blah, 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 blah. All of that would have been absolutely true, but that's not what the man was interested in. This man simply wanted to see. And Jesus was willing, as he always was and still is, to start where the person is. Wasn't where Jesus wanted him to be, but it was where he was. So again, Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do? And then he listened. And Jesus responded to the question the man asked, not the question Jesus would have wanted him to ask. The much more important question about spiritual blindness. Jesus' strategy for engagement was to listen. To listen to the person's need and respond to the need and make the connection there that way. And notice what happened, if you've got Mark 10 open in front of you by now, notice what happened, that the blind man follows Jesus down the road. Jesus connecting with that man about his physical sight became the way in to make the connection about his spiritual sight. By sorting out the physical, by listening to the man where he was, Jesus was able to make the connection and take him to where he wanted him to go. What if Jesus had gone straight for the sermon on spiritual blindness? What if Jesus had given him the four points of the gospel? 
Blind Bartimaeus would have told him to shove off. And no connection would ever have been made. However much we want people to be on our agenda, they are not. However much we want them to be asking our questions, they aren't asking our questions. And if we're serious about connecting our stories with theirs, we have to begin with where their stories are. And we can only begin with where their stories are if we're prepared to listen as they share their story with us. And so Jesus modelled this questioning, this listening and responding. Sometimes for Jesus, his listening wasn't just the words, it was the circumstances. He was listening to the situation. Remember Peter and his mates, they'd been out fishing all night and they'd caught absolutely nothing, diddly squat. And going out fishing at night was far more fruitful than going out fishing in the day. There's no point in them going back out in the day because if they hadn't caught anything at night, they certainly weren't going to catch anything in the day. And they were totally exhausted from a, day's, from a night's fishing and they hadn't caught anything. Now, what, what's Jesus hearing? He's hearing these men going, we've caught nothing. For another night, we've got no money, no income. How are we going to feed the kids? If this goes on, by next week, our supplies will have run out. The tax man will be round tomorrow if this continues for one more night. We're tired of this. Let's get some sleep. We'll get back out there as soon as it's dark. Sure, what Peter really needed was his sin problem fixed. That was Peter's real problem, wasn't it? Hello? You know, a catch of fish was neither here nor there in the great eternal scheme of things. What he really needed was his sin problem. But he wasn't asking that question. He wasn't interested in his sin problem, but he was jolly interested in the fish that he did not have. So Jesus listens and responds to where they are. Hey, throw your nets out. Have another go. Try it again. I know it's, I know it's daytime, but hey, whatever. Give it a shot. And he does. Jesus fixes having listened to their immediate situation and in doing he makes a connection which goes on to make a much greater connection to Peter's real problem. And by the end of the story, Peter's sin problem is fixed as well. Genius. He's confessing Jesus as Lord just a few verses later. Jesus' strategy to listen and respond, he listened and he responded. How different so often to our strategy we tell them, we're not sure they've heard, so we shout at them about a problem they don't even know they've got and have no interest in fixing because they don't know they have the problem that they don't know they've got and then we wonder why they haven't heard. Making the connection. It's as we hear people's real needs. Your friends are mine, your family members are mine. And through our questions, our interests and our listening, that we help people to be honest about themselves and open about themselves, which is the first step in helping to connect them with our story and then on to God's story. If people aren't honest about their need, then they cannot search for God. Because that searching undoes the pretense. That searching admits the need that they're trying so hard to ignore. You see, it's as people recognise their pain that perhaps they've had for 30 years but never admitted it, to recognise their pain that they can't resolve, the door's wide open for the gospel. It's as they recognise the fears that they have for now and for the future, for their loved ones that they can't dispel, the door for the gospel's wide open. It's as they admit to the guilt that they feel about some of the things that they've done that they've tried to forget but they can't and in the darkest times in the night those memories come flooding back. The door for the Gospels wide open. It's as people realise how lost they really are. The door is wide open. And the only way these things will come to the surface in somebody's life 
is if someone gets alongside them and listens to them, really listens to them. The only way is if someone takes the trouble to hear their story. Just before Christmas, Kerry and I went Christmas shopping in Bury St Edmunds. It's not so much the shopping, uh, but we just love to get away and spend some time together. And it was around five o'clock in the afternoon, we finally go to Starbucks. The carrot that Kerry has been dangling in front of me for the last few hours. We arrived and I flopped into one of those big, soft, comfy chairs near the window while Kerry went to order the drinks. I can't even pronounce what I like in Starbucks. A mochiato docciolati something or other. I just send her. If she's not with me, I'm stuffed. What do you want to drink? A coffee? What kind of coffee? A nice one. So she gets back, there we are in these relaxing chairs, the best drink in the world, sitting modestly close to the woman I love, a newspaper in hand, it's as good as it gets. 30 minutes of glimpsing glory. The only other time I get that feeling is when Wales thrash England at the Millennium Stadium. <laughs> and that doesn't happen very much. So you can imagine how highly irritated I was by what happened next when a slightly scruffy 50-year-old man with a ponytail at absolutely no invitation from me whatsoever shouts over my newspaper, you had a good day then? Well, I have, but it's ended now. I thought, but didn't actually say. So while I was trying to get my thoughts in some kind of order that I could verbalise, Kerry starts chatting to him. The next question to her, because ungodly thoughts are still going through my mind, was what do you do? And Kerry launches into how she works most of her time with the church. She does pastoral work and prayer ministry, redeeming even. All that stuff was just tumbling out with sickening ease. Well, I'm still trying to regain my equilibrium about this idiot and, and, and sort of gather my ministerial poise. Eventually, I've reordered my inner world and I too am ready to join the conversation. By which time, she's he's telling us that he's a Buddhist. And how he's discovered that Buddhism is so much more superior than Christianity. Man, how bad can this get? Here I was, moments ago, basking in heaven. Now this idiot is telling me that Buddhism is better than Christianity. So we continue chatting and he starts laying in on about Jesus. Hey, he's just one of the prophets and he was this and he was that. It was absolute claptrap. And everything in me wanted to scream at how wrong he was. To give him multiple reasons why he was wrong. Chapter and verse to tell him theologically and cosmologically and hermeneutically and ecclesiology and exegetically and every other alley I could possibly think of. I'm going to give it to this man. I was thinking, hey, I don't know much, but this is my game, this one. I know something about this. I can take him on. And inside my head's going, rocky, rocky, rocky. <laughs> This man interrupts my coffee for this nonsense. I'm about to self-combust in Starbucks in Bury St Edmunds. It was nearly all over. And in an apologetic evangelistic doctrinal homily, he's going to get it with both bullets. <laughs> when suddenly I hear inside my head a little whisper. I've heard a whisper like that before. Listen. Listen. I take no credit. I've been preparing some of this series. Maybe something of it stuck. In my head, I'm going, listen, no way, Lord. I can't listen to this claptrap. We've got to tell him, Lord. We're going to put him straight, sort him out. We're, and the word kept coming from God, listen, listen, listen. 
So biting my tongue so hard that it hurts and fixing my face in that poise that hopefully said, I'm a little interested now in what you are saying. I joined Kerry, who was already doing a great job at listening to this guy. And eventually he ran out of things to say about Jesus. And coming back to the stuff that Kerry had said about pastoral work, he began to talk about how he'd nursed his aunt, how he'd watched her die. And he began to talk about all the Buddhist theories around death and how it really mattered at the point of death, which way the energies were going and stuff like this. It kind of went over my head. I didn't understand it. But now we were listening, really listening hard. And I guess maybe he sensed that and he started to open up and he began talking about death. He talked about his aunt's death. He began talking about his own death. And as he opened up, you could sense his fear around this whole issue. So we asked him, you seem afraid of death. Yes, I am. And at that moment, the door of opportunity opened. That was the moment we could make the connection. And we were able to say as gently as we could, whatever you think about the superiority of this religion or that, we have found that as Christians we can live today and every day free from the fear of death. For the first time, we'd got this man's attention. We'd made the connection. And as we left that coffee shop, we prayed that he would reflect just on those words. Here was a Buddhist really fearful about death and the world to come as he understood it. And today he'd met two Christians who had found in their faith what he was so desperately looking for. If I'd not listened, if I'd given him both barrels, it may well have been good solid stuff. It may well have been stuff that man needed to hear and will need to hear one day. But if I had had, my confrontation would almost have certainly left him more entrenched. And if we'd not listened, we never would have heard about his fear of death. And we never would have had the privilege, the end of a shopping day in Starbucks in Bury St Edmunds, for our story to make a connection with his story, praying that through our story his would connect with God's. That's as good as it gets sometimes. Paul talks about this. He says, you, you just got to get into what they're into. I've become all things to all men. I, I listen, I get into what they're into so that I can save some people. Eugene Peterson puts it uh, like this. I enter their world and I try to get their experience, to see things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant. What did that man really need to talk about? He needed to talk about death. He didn't need to talk about theories of Buddhism and stuff. He'd gone to lots of universities and he'd studied Buddhism the world over. He would have answered my questions and I would have answered his and he would have answered mine and we just would have backed and forth. I would have become more entrenched and he would have become more entrenched and Kerry would have sat there listening in a lovely way. But we would have lost it. We would have lost it. We will only enter their world if we listen. So firstly, listening creates the opportunity for connection and secondly, and much quicker, listening creates the right for connection. Listening to people gives them dignity and value and that's why Jesus was an expert at it. If there was ever any person who didn't need to bother to listen to anybody, it was Jesus. He knew what they were going to say. Mac's voice is wasted on most of you, but let a few of us indulge just for a moment. He's a Welsh comedian and he tells the story of how he was fed up with his wife 
always knowing stuff before him. Do you know how he feels? So he'd come rushing home, someone says I had a baby. Yeah, I know. The chip shop's opening later on a Saturday. Yeah, I know. So he acts this plan. He went to a Welsh farmer and he got the biggest, smelliest pig he could possibly find. And he took it home and he dragged it up the stairs and he put it in the bath. And he waited. He didn't have to wait too long before his wife went into the bathroom, saw the pig sitting in the bath, screamed and ran hysterically down the stairs into the room where he's reading the paper and said, Max, there's a pig in the bathroom. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Got her. You see, if anyone could have gone through life just going, yeah, I know, it was Jesus. But he listened. He listened because it placed huge value and dignity on the other person. The most basic of all human needs is the need to understand and be understood. The best way to understand people is to listen to them. And as you honour people, as you listen to them, you earn the right yourself to be heard. As you listen to their story, you earn the opportunity to tell them yours. A good listener will ultimately be invited to speak. Not if you're married to my husband, some of you are saying, but maybe even if you're married to your husband. Eventually, a good listener will be invited to speak. As you share when you're invited to speak, the more open you are, the more encouragement you will give them to be open. The more vulnerable, the more encouragement for them to be vulnerable. And the more open and honest they get, the bigger the door of opportunity becomes. The one thing that will stop it all dead is you acting like you've got everything sussed and sorted. It will stop it dead because you'd be lying. And it will stop it dead because, hey, if you're not prepared to share, they won't be prepared to share much with you anymore. So be real and honest vulnerable with your friends. Talk about your fears, your dreams, your disappointments, your disillusions. And your friends will become more comfortable talking about theirs. And the more comfortable they are, the better they will share. And the more open they become and the better they are at sharing, the greater the opportunity to make the connection. So how do we help with all of this? How do we create listening opportunities? One word, hospitality. Jesus modelled hospitality and he didn't even have a house he was just hospitable to people and expressed it in time and friendship in fact if you are hospitable you don't need a house whatever the situation people will talk to you people seem to instinctively know that Carrie's hospitable she has a, a something on her head that says talk to me I will listen and so we can be putting the, 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 the food through the checkout, you know, ping, and through it goes. And by the time we get to the end, half of the cashier's life is out on the trolley as well. Are you good at listening? Do you help people get it out, to be open, to be vulnerable, to say it as it really is? They just grunt at me. Jesus modelled it using his time. He had planned time, he planned hospitality, he planned meeting with friends and meals and stuff. But what worries me more is his unplanned time. Jesus had unplanned time. I don't have any unplanned time, and I've watched most of you, you don't either. We plan our time to maximise our efficiency. We plan our time to make the most of every opportunity, to avoid wasting precious minutes doing absolutely nothing. 
Yet the most influential person who ever lived, the single life that's made more of an impact on this whole world than all other lives put together, had unplanned time. How ridiculous is that? The story of the meeting of the Samaritan woman begins with Jesus killing time at a well. Hope he had a book in his back pocket to read or something. Zacchaeus, the unloved tax collector, is fantastically transformed because Jesus, in the middle of his working day, he's on his way through Jericho. That's what his outlook says he has to do. That's what's in his diary. That's where he's going. But he stops, he throws his appointment to one side, he goes off piece, and he spots this man up a tree and says, okay, let's go home for tea. You've heard me say many times, that I worry in my life that I'd be too focused on what I have to do next to have spotted Zach in that tree. And then maybe we go on to doing what we do next. Sorry, Zach, we've got this thing and it's in our diary. We must do it because it's there. And we bury the guilt we feel about not stopping for him by doing the next thing and burying our head in it. We have to learn to chill. Must slow down. You can never listen to someone in a rush. Can you? Jesus was hospitable with his time. He was hospitable with his meals. Food's really important. We haven't got time to unpack all this in God's word. Uh, We're supposed to fast and we're supposed to feast. Food is really important. We can't develop it, but if you look at it through the scriptures, food is important because for many reasons, but here because it breaks down barriers. Food creates the climate for connection. That's why we bother with fellowship meals that are a real logistical headache. That's why we'll bother with a meal at the launch thing um, in 10 days' time, which is a real logistical headache. Why? Because food helps us make connections with people. And that evening is much more than just doing the thing. It's about us connecting as the community of God. It's why Kerry and I intentionally have meals with people who are closest to us every month, because it helps us to connect. It's why we have the ministry team in our home once a month, just for a meal. It's about community. It's about connecting. Food helps us do that. I have to say that nearly all the significant conversations I've ever had in my life have been around a meal. That might say more about me than the truth, but hey, that's, that, I think that's true. It helps us make the connection. Have people around the table in your home as often as you possibly can. Not for fast food, but for feasting. Feasting on the lives of others, listening to their stories, sharing a few stories of your own, listening to God's story, making the connection. And then finally, Jesus model hospitality using his social network. Partying sounded not very Christian, so I thought I'd just put it in brackets. But that's what he did. He just went to all the parties. And he loved parties, and people must have loved him going to parties. Otherwise, Levi, who was a tax collector and had a bunch of miserable people who were his friends, they never would have gone to a party that was uh, in Jesus' honour unless they knew that Jesus was cool about parties. And he loved being at parties. And there he was. When people have time together, they begin to share. And what do they share most? They share their stories. And for some, just like at Levi's party, those connections were to go on to become life-changing. Life. Changing. So, hey, who are you trying to reach at the moment? Who are your friends? With that in your mind, let's come to prayer. Let's pray together.